Hello, I'm Ian Madison, a fellow in the International Development Department and producer of Season 2 of the Refugee Realities podcast series. In this series, students on the Forced Migration and Refugees course at LSE bring us interviews with a range of people on the topic, covering the policies and politics that shape asylum to the experiences of refugees themselves. In this episode, Nina Lacroix and Shanice Morris sit down with Sir Mark Lowcock, formerly United Nations Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator. In it, they discuss some of the themes of Mark's recently released book, Relief Chief, and his over 35 years of experience in leading and managing responses to humanitarian crises. They highlight the importance of focusing on the lived experiences of refugees, particularly women and girls, and how to reintegrate some humanity into the humanitarian system more broadly when dealing with people affected by crises and displacement. Nina Lacroix is from France. After a first-class degree from the University of Essex, Nina is now a student in the International Development and Humanitarian Emergencies Program at the LSE, where she's conducted research for the United Nations on the prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse in humanitarian settings. Shanice is from Bermuda. After completing a degree at the LSE and spending a year working for a charity, Shanice returned to the LSE to do an MSc in International Development and Humanitarian Emergencies. She wrote her undergraduate dissertation on the UN Women, Peace and Security Agenda and has an interest in gender, conflict and security. I hope you enjoy the episode. Today we're interviewing Sir Mark Lowcock. Um, he's a former United Nations Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator, which is a post that he served from May 2017 to June 2021. Prior to this, he was Permanent Secretary for the UK's Department for International Development and has spent over 35 years um, leading and managing responses to humanitarian crises globally. He's also currently a visiting professor in practice at the LSE in our Department of International Development. Um, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for asking me. Also, excitingly, something we're going to talk about a lot in the podcast today is about your recent book, your newest book, Relief Chief. Um, a lot of the questions that Nina and I came up with today, we came up with after reading the book. So we're really excited to be able to speak to you today. Thanks for reading the book. <laughs> it was a great read. No, it's a really good read. I really recommend it. <laughs> so the first question we wanted to ask is something that kind of came up in our studies and also a bit briefly in your book, in the sections that we read. Um, is kind of about this idea of host countries refugees trying to shift responsibility. And I think that was very much in the news recently with the news about the UK and their kind of plans for asylum seekers to go to Rwanda. We were wondering if you could just speak on this kind of idea of responsibility shifting and how kind of we can potentially get host countries to be able to kind of shift, change this view that like, refugees are more of like a burden that should be kind of placed elsewhere. Well, I mean, firstly, Displacement in crises is a huge and growing problem, and refugees are a dimension of that. Obviously, there's people who are displaced inside their own country as well. Uh, often, they're even more vulnerable and hard to help than refugees. There's also another category of people who are, have fled their country and are somewhere else, but are not registered as refugees, and those illegal undocumented migrants are often even more vulnerable um, and what we've seen following a period beginning at the end of the second world war where countries particularly having had the experience of so many people fleeing nazi germany 
wanted to have solidarity with people who, through no fault of their own, were having to leave just to save their lives and provide refuge. And that's where the Refugee Convention came from. And that is what led also in 1946 to the establishment of the UN Refugee Agency. The Refugee Agency now um, is one of the set of humanitarian organisations I was trying to help and support when I was the UN's coordinator for humanitarian affairs. And they play a, a role with all of these groups of people, actually, who've been forced to flee for one reason or another, either inside their own country or to a neighbouring country. Um, and that's their expertise and their area of um, specialism. And um, they observe, and, and Filippo Grandi, who's a very distinguished, um, experienced, impressive person who's now the head of UN Refugee Agency, they have observed over the last 10 years this huge change of view that you've just described, this um, declining willingness to um, accept and discharge the responsibilities you take if, as every country more or less, you're a signed up member of the Refugee Convention. Um, now, um, you talked about what the UK has done on this Rwanda project, which I think is an atrocious thing to do. I feel embarrassed and ashamed to be a British citizen who knows about these issues and to see the government doing this. That's not something I ever thought I would see. But unfortunately, it is part of, the, of a wider problem in more than one place on these issues. And we need to get back to reminding ourselves why the Refugee Convention was put there in the first place. I think that's one of the important things um, to do. It's also important to recognise that progress can be made. Antonio Guterres, who was my boss as a Secretary General uh, when I was working for the UN, tells a story of how when he first became the UN's High Commissioner for Refugees, it's a story I tell in the book actually, um, there was a discussion in the agency about whether the refugee problem had declined so much that the agency would be needed in future. No one's talking about that now, and that is a symptom of the deterioration we've seen in recent years. Yeah, no, definitely. I think that was a really interesting part of the book to read, because um, it was, I think it was towards the beginning, um, just reading that like one sentence, and like, I think for kind of us who were students of this right now, and we talk about these issues all the time, it's kind of in inconceivable that there was a time to think that like this agency wouldn't need to exist anymore. So I think it is really interesting that you bring that up, and yeah, I think we've both definitely resonated with what you just said. I think... Speaking kind of about these kind of shifts in the past 10 years, something that I think um, you highlight is important, not in just the talk we just went to, but also in your book, and that we discuss a lot in classes about really like promoting the lived experiences of refugees and really highlighting these people that you've met and the, the positions that you've held, um, which I think you do really beautifully um, in the book. And we wanted to ask you just like, why do you think this is so important of kind of like highlighting the humanity of these people and their lived experiences? particularly, I guess, in a global environment where we're kind of getting to a point where there's citizens in some countries who do host refugees who have these very negative attitudes towards them as people and don't want to kind of recognize their humanity or view them with empathy. Like, why do you think it's important, as you did in your book, to kind of share their stories? It is very easy when you see things happening a long way away, you see it on the television or you read in the newspapers, it's very easy to allow what you're seeing to be reduced to concepts or numbers or things which have very little emotional content to them or very little humanity uh, or shared human experience. And firstly, 
I was very, in some cases, shocked, but always very moved by the stories that displaced people and refugees told me in dozens of countries I visited in crisis. And I, one of the things I've said in the book is, you know, I had a busy four years at the UN. I, I went to 100 meetings of the Security Council to brief them. I had thousands of emails. I gave hundreds of press conferences. I read tens of thousands of pages of documents. I went to countless meetings. I sat on hundreds of airplanes. Most of that has already washed away through my system. But I remember very, very clearly, the thing I remember most acutely is what real people said to me and their stories. And that's what um, made an impression on me. And so the reason I have tried to do my best to capture that in the book is because when we turn these concepts into the experience of an actual person who we've met or listened to or heard their story, it makes a much bigger emotional connection with us and it makes us much more likely to understand that we could be in that position too and to want to do something about it. Um, and if you always think about the individual and how in every meaningful respect, they're just like you, they have the same hopes, aspirations, fears, anxiety, desires, um, and, but life's lottery has been crueler to them than to us. If you think about things in those terms, you're not just more outraged, but you're more determined to have something done and you understand better why something should be done. Yeah, definitely. I think that, that definitely um, spoke most to me in the book. I think that highlighting those experiences is so important. I think also challenges like some of these perceptions that we talked about in our seminars of like fear that people have towards refugees specifically when they might be presented often as like the other the like the, the the scary other coming into these places but when you really like highlight you know these are just everyday real people like you said who are just like us who just have happened to have these horrible things happen to them that could happen to us at any time and honestly that's just a virtue of luck and i think i think you've done that really really well and i think that's that's something we really wanted to bring up in this podcast i think the podcast series the the, the purpose of it is to kind of tell these stories um largely and interview people and get these perspectives so i think Hopefully, this podcast series is contributing to that in some way. Yeah, so the next question that we had for you is in your book, you talk about, you talk a lot about how the experience of women and girls have like touched you because they are disproportionately affected by the circumstances they're going through in terms of crisis. And so something that you've been mentioning as well in chapter 10, I believe, on women and girls is um, the sexual violence that takes place and other types of violence in general in this type of um, context. And so I guess the question that I had for you is, um, why do you think that are the greatest barriers to the prevention of sexual exploitation and abuse in such crises? Well, this is a huge issue and it's a criticism of the humanitarian system that it's always been true that women and girls suffer most in crises, but until quite recently, we haven't applied that knowledge to the way we help them and think about them and support them. And that is beginning to change, but it's taken far too long. You know, it's a long, long way to go still. This is, um, of course, to be seen, as I say in the book, against the backdrop of the general features of gender inequality and the general historical fact that men through the millennia have abused and mistreated and been violent towards women and girls. And that's a horrid feature of the human species, particularly 
you know, the male of the species. Um, when I um, was born, it was not a crime in this country for a man to rape his wife. I say that to my 22-year-old daughter now, and she cannot believe that so recently that was the case. And, it, and I talk a bit in the book about how much things have changed just in the last 100 years. And um, it's important, though, to recognise those atrocious features of male behaviour, which, which have changed and continue to change in many countries, particularly over the last 100 years, are most acute and, worst of all, in crisis situations, particularly in the context of conflict. The standards of behaviour expected of them are not as high as they are in peaceful situations. Um, and there is something to do, I think, with the biology of the male of the species, which really contributes to a terrible deterioration in behaviour. The biggest issue, though, is not that. The biggest issue is power relations, about the power relations between men and women and the fact that they're not equal. Um, and we have constantly to be aware of that and to fight against the consequences of it. And um, we had a crisis in humanitarian agencies when I was at the UN, when Oxfam were exposed in 2018 of having not dealt well enough eight years before in 2010 in the context of the Haiti earthquake with the fact that men, part of aid response teams, were abusing women and girls, sexually exploiting women and girls in Haiti. And Oxfam knew a bit about what was going on and didn't do enough to clean it up. Actually, I give Oxfam very high marks for doing better than most agencies and being more determined than most agency and agencies in improving. But they you know, were in the public glare and um, when this was exposed in 2018 and it provided an opportunity for the whole sector to try to clean things up and that's a journey that's begun but there's a long way to go in it and the origin of it is gender inequality and power relations and 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 also some other things that are characteristics of the behavior of men in war situations well thank you so much for that for that answer i think it is true that um we need to not only address the symptoms and deal with the complaints that comes from the beneficiaries or anyone impacted by the crisis, but there's a big element of structural violence that we need to take into consideration and address if we really want to alleviate all this type of suffering. And I guess the next question also that I had regarding uh, women and girls is you mentioned in your book that um, their needs are not being properly addressed. And you mentioned that it's very hard, maybe there's a reluctancy to gather appropriate data why is it still so hard to uh, address the need that women and girls have if we know there is a lack in that um, sphere, that makes sense? Yeah, so this is a very important question. Now, historically, the way aid agencies in humanitarian situations have worked out what needed to be done is count the number of people, just count the number of people, mm -hmm. not distinguish between different sorts of people, and use that to be the basis for working out how many tents do we need, how many water facilities, how many latrines, how many um, kilos of grain and so on. Uh, over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been better efforts to disaggregate the data between different sorts of people. And so the fact that now um, there's much more systematic efforts made to identify 
the proportion of women and girls and there's a recognition that women and girls are subject to different problems and also have different needs. That is a big step forward. A continuing massive structural problem though is that the agencies most charged with caring about and focusing on the needs of women and girls are agencies which are chronically systematically underfunded, particularly the UN Women and the UN Population Fund. And there's a chicken and egg problem because the donors who voluntarily provide money worry about whether those agencies have the capacity to deliver programs effectively and so they don't give them much money and so by definition they don't have much capacity mm -hmm. and so what needs to happen is a, a, a progressive investment and building up of capacity and extending the the programs that those agencies but also others in particular leading international NGOs can do for women and girls and I have to say this was a huge source of frustration um, to me when I was at the UN including during the pandemic when we were saying to people look in our first biggest ever humanitarian response plan we put out during the pandemic for um, people affected by the pandemic one of the things we did was write lots of project proposals to deal particularly with the issues of women and girls and we got almost no money for it we then put out a special appeal just for women and girls things and we got very little response to that as well so a lot of the issue comes back to what are the choices made by the donors who provide money to the agencies and we need to keep pushing them and nagging and we need to have really good quality programs that if they were financed could be done and then demonstrate what a big difference they make. How can we give an incentive for donors to in invest more into women and girls? Do you think that women and girls across the global so has a role to play or is this something that can only be done internally? I, I think the single most important thing is to gather all the evidence and tell powerful stories and shine a light on the plight of women and girls and then basically to shame the donors into recognizing firstly there's a real need that's not being met mm -hmm. and secondly there are agencies who could do more about it if given a chance and for me as I've said a lot in the book and earlier in our conversation putting this in terms of individual women and girls you've spoken to and whose stories you've heard and in, in the case of my book who's some of whose pictures are in the book mm -hmm. makes it something which is hard for anybody to not see or uh, and actually people um, you know often have an emotional reaction so want something to be done about it so we are making progress on this it's very frustrating it takes so long but we have to keep go keep going with doing those kinds of things no hundred percent i think more can be done and we the have progress that haven't been done we need to acknowledge it but we need to take the bigger picture and consider the gender inequality i have a follow-up question on that because i think it's really interesting what you said about kind of kind of shaming the donors into doing a bit more how do you think we can because this is something I'm quite, I guess, like both professionally and personally interested in. How do you think we can present this fight in a way that doesn't kind of fall into gender stereotypes of just focusing on women's vulnerability and kind of, because which I think you do well in the book in terms of showing that, like, though, yes, specifically, like women and girls are facing quite, like, honestly, like horrendous circumstances at some point, there's very unique points of resilience and yes. kind of determination. And how do we kind of balance? presenting this in a way be like, no, there is a big need, but then also not necessarily like leaning into these 
falling into, I guess, like gender essentialisms and stereotypes at the same time? Like, how can we balance that? It's incredibly important. And um, one of the biggest problems that I saw and risks aid agencies face is creating not just stereotyping, but dependency and the stripping of people of their agency and their ability to do things for themselves. And that's a absolutely crucial element of anybody's humanity. Um, so, you know, we, we do need to be careful about the language we use. And the book is dedicated not to victims, mm -hmm. but to victims and survivors, mm -hmm. because, um, you know, the these are people who have agency, who've struggled against battles and have been resilient and have, um, you know, su survived and um, made progress and so on. And I think, you know, there's some other structural things about the aid system that can help address all this. I mean, the, one very obvious thing is to do with the number of women in senior positions. When I first went mm -hmm. into my job as the head of the Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, about a quarter of the senior staff, the top 120 people or so in the organization around the world were women. And following the leadership um, the, and the, basically the instructions of my boss, but also because I <laughs> thought it was right, um, Antonio Guterres said to all of us in the leadership of the UN, we need more women in senior positions. And as I've said in other places, there, if you're, you're in a senior position in the UN, there's not necessarily all that many things you have a lot of control over. You spend a lot of your time cajoling and begging and pleading and suggesting and encouraging, but who gets what job inside your own agency or organization is one of the things you have a bit more control over. And so by the time I left OCHA, half of the senior jobs were held by women. And that, you could see the benefits of that in multiple different ways, different issues being brought to the table, um, less thoughtlessness, less, um, it wasn't that there was so much malign, um, perspectives from men who are holding positions it was a you know their life experience hadn't been the same their understanding of issues was not the same and adding diversity to the leadership not just in terms of gender but in lots of other ways as well makes organizations much stronger i think about i have another question mm -hmm. is how do you find a balance between highlighting those special needs that women and girls have without invisibilizing men who also suffer from, for example, sexual violence or other um, stereotypes that comes with their masculinities. Yeah, and, and it's, um, it's important to recognize that men and boys can be subject to sexual violence as well. There's been absolutely atrocious use of deliberate violence and appalling brutality and violation of men and boys, for example, in Syria, which I talked about in the book and this this um, inhuman decision to um, you know abuse people in the most extreme and humiliating and painful and horrible way and men and boys um, often are subject to that I, I think we do also though have to say that women and girls are still much more likely and much more vulnerable to those problems. We need to recognize it's not just women and girls, but it, it is still mostly women and girls. And there's a lot we can do um, more than we are doing at the moment, just by doing a few basic things better for women and girls. That doesn't mean we don't care about men and boys subject to these violations. We do and we have to, um, but we mustn't use that as an excuse not to do the things we can do for women and girls. Of course, I think yeah. what we talk a lot about in our courses is tricky because 
when you mention thing as woman empowerment and something like that in other cultures make a threaten and that also can generate some more violence so i think men should also be included in that process but it's it's tricky how you go about it i, I believe the central problem is the behavior of men and of course mm-hmm. of course that is the central yeah. problem so how do young boys learn different things what do they learn from their fathers who are the male role models who say to everyone in their community no it's not okay to treat women and girls in this way that's not how we should be doing things in our society it needs to be um you know there needs to be a much larger number of male role models and male voices on this issue because because it's men who are the no, cause of the problem. No, of course. Yeah. No, I think the point about male role models is definitely really important. And I think that like points to some things that we read actually like in our refugees course about like programs being attempted to start in refugee camps, like kind of trying to use displacement as an opportunity to kind of create these male role models, educate a bit more on things on concepts like gender equality and try and push women's empowerment. Um, in some refugee camps, these were like some readings that we did, which I think is an interesting concept um, to see like potentially being displaced from where we are and where our gender roles are quite fixed, where women might have only kind of one type of situation they're allowed to do, might be confined to the home, and then being in a situation of displacement where maybe women in a refugee camp have more opportunities to take on household responsibilities and able to exercise their agency in new ways that weren't necessarily afforded to them prior to being displaced i think was a really interesting part of the course and an interesting way to i guess think about displacement which prior to doing this course i'd never really thought of so when i went um on one of my visits to um cox's bazaar in northern bangladesh where hundreds of thousands of rohingya people have fled to from violence and ethnic cleansing in uh, myanmar on one occasion, actually with the head of the UN Refugee Agency and the head of the International Organization of Migration, which is another really important organization in this space, we sat down with a group of male role models and male religious leaders to have this conversation about how in the refugee camps of Cox's Bazaar, they are trying to um, empower and give agency and respect the roles of women and girls. So you do see some good examples of it happening. I think it's also important to recognize there are millennia of reinforced cultural behaviors and activities and ways in which things are done, which systematically over history have marginalized and excluded and exploited women and girls. And um, that, that needs to be addressed progressively over a time, as it has been to a significant degree in many countries over the last hundred years, but it hasn't been everywhere mm. to the same degree. Definitely. I'm um, just checking the time. Yeah, I think we're close to about 30 yeah, minutes. Yeah, we, have, so... we have a tight 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess one last question that we have for you, which is probably a tough one, but like, what do you think is your greatest achievement as ERC? Um, what is something that you will take away from your four years in that position? It's really hard to boil down to a single yeah. thing. <laughs> no, yeah. Something. And um, so I'm not going to give you one thing. I'm going okay. to talk about a few things. I okay. mean, firstly, as I said in the book, when I arrived as the head of OCHA, the organization had a whole bunch of problems, including it was on the point of bankruptcy, actually, because oh, the donors were fed up 
with various things. And sorting that out is something that was important to do. Um, I think that getting issues of women and girls on the agenda is something that mattered a lot to me. I spent a lot of time trying to persuade everybody, especially the donors, that we could do a much better job if we responded faster to predictable problems we knew were about to happen. Mm -hmm. And if we responded faster, we would get a cheaper and uh, more humane response. That was another area. Um, but there are probably a longer list of things that I was hoping to achieve and didn't wasn't able to achieve. And I set some of the, my hopes out at the beginning of the book. And the reason that it wasn't possible to achieve many of them is because as time has passed, and it was certainly true in the four years where I was responsible for these issues at the UN, the scale of humanitarian crisis around the world has just exploded. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is because what's been addressed is the symptoms. We raised 60, 70% more money to deal with these problems um, when I was at the UN. $20 billion a year we were raising by the end, but that was being used to, to deal with the symptoms of crises. People being displaced or starving or um, suffering health um, epidemics. What you have to do if you wanna reduce the level of need is deal with the causes. Mm -hmm. And the world has got less effective compared to the first 50 years of my life, in the last 10 years, the world's got less effective in dealing with the causes of the problem. And we really need to turn that around if we don't want to watch things continually getting worse in the next, in the period ahead. All right. Well, thank you so much for your answers throughout this podcast. It's been super valuable and insightful for us to listen to you. And obviously the book has been a great read as well. So if you are interested, listeners, to this podcast, to hear more about Mark's thoughts, please purchase the book Relief Chief. There'll be a link um, in the description of this podcast. So yeah, once again, thank you very much, Mark, for answering all of our questions. It's been a pleasure. Great questions. I love talking to you. Thanks for listening to this episode in Season 2 of the Refugee Realities podcast series, hosted by the Department of International Development at the LSE and made possible by the Eden Catalyst Fund. We have more episodes on the way, so please do stay tuned.